Hey, this is Jason Isbell, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. It's true, you are listening to the LSQ Podcast, and I appreciate it. I'm Jenny LSQ. Welcome to episode 97. It was such a pleasure talking to Jason Isbell for the interview in this episode which coincides with Isbell and the 400 unit doing what has become a fall tradition. They're playing a series of shows at Nashville's legendary Ryman Auditorium. They also have other U.S. dates in early 2024. You can get info and tickets at jasonisbell.com. While you're there, maybe get a copy of the deluxe edition of Southeastern. It just came out for that excellent album's 10th anniversary. And also, if you weren't aware of it, look into their weather vanes from earlier this year. Plus... This week, you can see Isbel in the new Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. So look for him therein. And we are talking about Pop-Tarts when the interview started. I don't remember how we got there. I think Jen, uh, Jason's publicist, had a memory of Pop-Tarts from our friendship, and uh, it set us off on one. So here we go. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I mean, sometimes you just got to go raw with the Pop Tart if circumstances call for it, you know? At a yeah, at a certain age, you stop heating up the pop tarts. Yeah, because you're just like, who am I kidding? Yeah, making this like it's a self care when really it's a just let's just ignore it and pretend it never happened. You don't want to put too much. Like the longer it takes for you to prepare the pop tart, the uh, more likely somebody's going to see you preparing the pop tart. <laughs> okay, here we go. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Great to meet you. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, you too. I don't know how much uh, you were told about the sort of theme of this show, but it's the way back. It's the what you were into as a kid and all of the things that you were kind of soaking in in your environment that first got you feeling creative um, and how, you know, how you have built on those things. But but really kind of focusing on that on that early period of time. Um, And so I want to start with what do you remember about the first feelings of creativity that ever emerged from you how old would you have been when some urge to create sparkled isn't that uh inherent doesn't that happen from the beginning for kids don't we have to be taught not to create i think i think this spark is just our existence when we're little kids and then somebody sort of beats it out of you or they don't you know um but the first time i saw other people being creative uh, would have been family because my my granddad my dad's dad was a Pentecostal preacher not by trade like I don't think he earned enough money preaching to support his family so he also painted houses did some mild construction work but he played music and all of his brothers and sisters played music and and my uncles all played my grandmother sang and I think that was probably the first I saw of of what we would typically call creativity but I don't know I think I think the more time I spend around little kids the more I see that that is just a default setting 
you know, it, it's kind of like uh, trust and respect. It's like kids just sort of have it. And if we don't beat it out of them, they keep it. Truly. But also I, I, I've noticed that, and maybe it's just because uh, maybe it's a confirmation bias because everybody I talk to is somebody who's a professional artist to say that maybe it's the next level of that feeling or the sort of like becoming a bit fixated on it in a way that maybe other people it just kind of flows or or they it flows away from them farther that people who end up being creative professionally in their adulthoods that there's that moment where it's solidifying that something that they're discovering that they love that is the feeling that carries them forward like until until yeah. now like yeah that's the kind of thing like when did you realize like no this is really important to me it's not just <clears throat> the thing my family does around me you know i was the only child around in my family like i i was my parents only child i was uh you know my my uncle didn't have any kids my mom's family they all had kids that were much younger than me so until i was in my teens there were no cousins there was there was nobody just me and a bunch of adults you know and i was a little ocd i think that probably helped you know we didn't have a lot of money we didn't have a lot of options i think that helped a whole lot you know, I enjoyed playing instruments uh, because I could control them, you know, and that was about it as far as me being in control of anything. So I just liked it enough to to want to do it all the time. I don't think I've ever practiced, you know, I still don't feel like in the traditional sense of the term practice, I don't think I've ever done it. Between interviews today, I got the guitar out and played because I didn't have anything to do for that, you know, period of time. and and. I think talent, you know, obviously some people have natural predispositions toward music or 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 math or, or reading or whatever, but the the majority of talent for me I think is just being lucky enough to want to do something all the time. It's just love. Like everything else good, it's just love at at its at its root. And the way creative pursuits were presented to me it wasn't directly entangled with anything commercial. It was something that people did because it made them feel better and because they could control the machines. And as I got older, I realized that was probably a big part of why my grandfather played music and his siblings played music was because they could control that part of their life and they could choose which songs they wanted to sing and which songs they wanted to play. And uh, they'd grown up very poor, you know, sharecroppers, and, and they didn't have control over much of anything else. I think that combination of, of lack of options and just a genuine love for the way the arts were presented to me from the beginning, I think, culminated in my identifying with it so closely. And then something sort of made me a fool. Something Something in there somewhere... Uh, told me to actually pursue this to the ends of the earth if I had to. That's the part that I don't quite understand. I don't really, still, I don't know what about me made me never stop and go, okay, I got to get my act together. You know, um, probably success fairly early on helped a whole lot with that, but I don't know what got me through those, you know, last thousand miles in the van. Something did. Probably the encouragement that I got in those first few years. You know, I had a good foundation of worth uh, as it related to my creative life. But the first thing I remember hearing 
musically was my grandfather playing the guitar, the banjo or, or the fiddle or the mandolin and singing gospel songs, but also singing hillbilly songs, you know, mountain songs and uh, bluegrass and blues music. And all of these things were the same. You know, they all sounded the same when he sang them. They all dealt with the same topics. But when I was a kid, I heard all those things at once in one big pile. And music was presented to me as something that was directly tied with family and security and safety and control. And so it was very highly regarded because of that. And you played with the sort of family band as a as a regular practice. Is that is that correct? We all, yeah, we all just sat around and played music all the time. That's just what we what we did when when people weren't working or going to school. We just sat around and played music. So about once a week, usually Sunday night, uh, my grandmother would have everybody over to her house, and this would be like extended family, great aunts and cousins and distant cousins and and family friends and stuff. And she would make some food, and everybody would just sit in the living room and play music, or go out on the porch if if the weather was good. And that's what we did, you know, mostly gospel songs, but also some, you know, Great Speckled Bird and Under the Double Eagle and, you know, and then some comical stuff. My grandfather liked uh, uh, String Bean and Grandpa Jones and Little Jimmy Dickens and all the funny Opry stars, you know. And so in the mix there, did you start to gravitate toward any of the kind of commercial music you were also just hearing as a kid, you know, during adolescence or something yeah. Yeah, for sure. I remember, uh, you know, the 80s, the pop music of the 80s hit me because pop music hits kids, you know, directly. Uh, so and now I look back on it, and I think, how lucky was I, you know, because like, like Squeeze was on the radio and Prince and uh, uh, Blondie and the Bangles and the Go-Go's and, you know, Crowded House and, and th this kind of stuff was happening on uh, mainstream radio and we didn't have any other type of radio there you know we had big commercial stations and that was that you know everything else was was uh, sermons and talk radio and stuff and so uh the only music that i knew of outside of the personal sort of family music was uh big hits huge popular songs you know and then I liked electric guitar early on. My dad's brother played the electric guitar. My mom's brother did too. And and so I gravitated towards that and I liked the volume of it. And a lot of the stuff that my grandfather had played for me had led me to the blues, which which led me back out to, you know, Hendrix and Eric Clapton and and all these like 60s British guitar players and stuff. So I was taking all that in. Then when Pearl Jam happened, that was huge because I was already, you know, dressing like those guys and playing a Strat with a wah-wah pedal. And, you know, so that was a huge moment because all of a sudden everybody at school was dressing like I was already, you know, and they were listening to a record that had a bunch of loud guitar solos on it. And that was a really big moment for me when 10 came out. You know, I think I was like 13 or something, and it was it was a huge deal. By that time, you could shred by then. Yeah, it, it was quick, you know, it was quick um, for me. Like I started seven or eight years old, and, and just immediately that's, I would do my homework as fast as I could and then just play the guitar. 
until somebody made me stop and go to bed. So it, it happened super quickly. But there were, because I read that you started on mandolin because it's a little bit smaller, but you could mm -hmm. play the other instrument. You could play piano, right? Well, how many other instruments were you able to play at that time, but still guitar was the one that won out? Well, they all made sense, you know. I don't know, like the able to play thing. Like I could sit down and play something. And if you're not a musician, you would think, oh, he can play the piano. He can play the banjo or he can play the dobro or whatever. But, you know, they're really, they're all classes of instruments. And if you can play stringed instruments, you can play stringed instruments. You know, if you can play woodwinds, you can play woodwinds. I never, I never could play woodwinds. The brass I could do because when I was in school, I, I started playing trumpet and French horn. I wanted to be in the in the high school band because that's where all the music was and and i talked my parents into letting me do that and so like i learned how to play horns but you know i can't play woodwinds and i can't really play bowed strings i can bow a guitar like like jimmy page but not um i can't play the fiddle uh, and certainly not in my house i can't play the fiddle right but i mean you you potentially could have chosen those instruments to become obsessed with in the way that you did guitar they were all like you had the beginnings of all of them but the guitar sucked you in yeah that's what the guitar does you know it's the guitar it's the greatest instrument of all time it's the most portable instrument you can make full chords and fill a room with you can't take a piano to a party and you can't accompany somebody on a flute you know the guitar is the perfect instrument and then the electric guitar one thing that i really liked about that is when you get to the end of what you know how to do, you can just make noise. And so when I was teaching guitar, when I was in my 20s, I would tell my students, get an electric guitar first. Everybody says get an acoustic guitar because it'll build up your calluses or whatever, but that's that's nonsense. What you want is somebody to play as much as possible. So if you get an electric guitar and a couple of pedals, then you, know, you, you run out of things you can do. Uh, you can just turn knobs and push buttons and make noise for hours. And that's what I would do. I had like a delay pedal and that was it. And I would just sit on the floor and turn the knobs and listen to the sounds, you know. I'm intrigued that you mentioned in your 20s you did some teaching because, I mean, also in your 20s you were in drive-by truckers. So mm -hmm. was there some overlap of where you were where you were doing both things or yeah, how, how many students did you have? I, I'd love to hear a little more about that. I had a few. I had to quit when I joined that band. So you know, 2021, I taught at the bar at the what's that little town called? It's right outside of Memphis, um, Bartlett, the Bartlett Community Center in Bartlett, Tennessee. And um, I had I would teach two or three days a week. And uh, I started when I was in college there doing that. And then I went back through the summer and, and taught some. But I had one student that was like, a six-year-old girl, a seven-year-old girl, but she was really small and she was terrified. She was so scared of me and I couldn't, like, no matter what I did, she was so scared. I, I don't, I don't think she ever learned anything from me because I would try to, you know, tell her where to put her hands and she would just, ah, like it was too much. And then I had one student who was, his name was Julius Pfefferkorn and he was a military man and he had been in the conflict overseas and, and uh, blown up one of his hands. He, he had blown up his, le his left hand, I think. So it was in all kinds of gnarly shape. And so he couldn't make chords with it. So we flipped it around the guitar so he could make chords with the other hand and, and try to play with the hand that was injured. And then I had one kid who I loved this kid. He was like 11 years old. 
and his favorite thing in the whole world was the music of Chris DeBerg. You remember Chris DeBerg? He didn't, but he didn't like that uh, uh, Lady in Red stuff. He wanted to learn how to play like Don't Pay the Ferryman. He wanted all the like Chris DeBerg deep cuts. This was an eleven-year-old child in like two thousand, the year two thousand complete weirdo i loved him so much because i was like oh i understand you completely young man nobody around you knows what the hell you're talking about you love chris de berg so i would go back and i would chart out all these chris de berg songs and it was it made me so happy just yeah i, I liked it i liked teaching i didn't get to do it for very long because I, I had to give it up when i went on tour Let's talk about songwriting, because we've talked about learning to play your instrument. You know, how early into playing guitar a lot did you start to come up with your own melodies and songs and then focus on that as well? It, when I was probably 10 or 11, uh, I started writing lyrics to to like blues patterns, you know, old old blues songs and stuff. And I was also writing some poems and short stories and things like that because i read a lot I, I i enjoyed reading my mom would you know read to me and give me books from the time i was really little so i i, I started writing lyrics at 11 12 13 years old but i didn't let anybody hear them until you know much later seven or eight years later just because uh you know nobody wanted to hear them and 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 they weren't very good um uh, it was just for me at, at first, which it kind of still is, I guess. But uh, now people want to hear them, you know. Do you think there's there's any essential quality in even those earliest lyrics and songs that would remind us of you if somehow magically we could we could hear it now that would have a, a Jason Isbell quality to it? I hope so. Yeah, yeah, probably so. I mean, I was trying to be witty, you know, and... Uh, there might have been a good detail every three or four songs. I might have found my way to one good detail, you know. Yeah, I would hope I would hope that you would recognize that. But I mean, my parents shocked my parents, you know, um, because you're not used to a ten or eleven year old writing songs, you know. And I would, I remember singing one for them in the car one time. I was like, "Hey, you guys want to hear this song I made up?" And I sang it in the car and. I remember them doing the thing where they would look at each other, like thinking that I couldn't see them, you know, because my parents were super young. Like when I was 10, my dad wasn't 30 yet. My mom was 27. Dad was 29, you know, so they were both kind of looking at each other like, what the hell do we do with this thing? You know, they did that a lot. And, and I noticed, you know, there was a lot of like, I don't know, is this good or is this bad? You know, what's going on here? But they were always really impressed and, and, Everybody around me encouraged me because they could tell that I loved making music and that I had an aptitude for it. And, you know, so they did what they could to accommodate that. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned these couple of uh, kind of trademark elements, the the witty, something witty and, and something that's a, a strong detail as, as being a couple of the elements that, that you recognize are part of how you do what you do. When did you start to notice those things, what your style was and how early did a, a style begin to develop? I don't know. You know, that's not really something I've ever thought much about. I mean, I think the first songs that I played for people uh, when I was probably 19, those probably had those elements already. You know, the idea of like find a particular detail and then 
make it mean something, you know, or create a character and follow them around. You know, those were things that I was doing early on. But that was in a lot of ways because that's what I was drawn to. That's what I liked. You know, I like I like to be reading a book and then have to sit it down for a second and think about what you just read. You know, and I like that with a song, too, where you have to pause it and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he just say? You know, it sounds simple and then it turns out to not be. So that was something I was trying to do from the beginning, especially from the late teens. But, you know, I, I was a weird kid. I mean, I, I looked very normal and I came from Alabama and I just happened to have these interests that a lot of people around me didn't really have. And, you know, there was when I was in Memphis in college, there was one time when they, they had a open mic, like poetry reading downtown at, at this coffee shop bar uh, that was the same place that I wound up playing songs for people for the first time my own songs called the map room it was downtown it's a shoe store now I, I stumbled across it a couple of years ago on tour and bought some shoes in there but um the ceiling <laughs> still the ceiling is still the same they still have the the maps on the ceiling so that's that's pretty good but uh I went in there with my little notebook you know and I got up for some I don't know why I wanted to do this I think I thought that I was pretty good at it and and wanted confirmation on that so I got up, you know, all these hipsters, man, and they were all writing about uh, Jeff Buckley and stuff because he had just recently drowned there in Memphis. And and I got up and, and read one of my poems and I got about halfway through it. And the lady that owned the place stopped me. She came out of the kitchen. I, I'll never forget. She came out of the kitchen and she stopped me right in the middle, which is terribly rude. You know, uh, they hadn't done that to anybody else. But she said, we're all reading poems that we wrote, not just poems that we like. And uh, I said, have you heard this some, somewhere before? And she said, no. And I said, I wrote this yesterday, you know, but if if I'm ripping somebody off, I, I, I wish you'd let me know because I, I don't think that I am. And, and then she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead, you know, because I didn't look like that. I had like khaki pants and, you know, sneakers and my shirt was tucked in and my hair was short, you know, and, and all these kids were, they looked like they'd been jumping trains. Uh <laughs> you know, with the trying to begging for money to feed their dog. They did not look like me, you know, and my accent, all these things have always sort of collaborated to make me a, a strange person, which I really like, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for it now. So kind of noticing that that kind of detailed lyric was an important thing for you or that that could be the roots of the song tree consistently as you like if you could find that you could a song could kind of grow around it um it's it sounds like is one of the things you're you're talking about because it, it makes me wonder like do does do some of the things that end up being that important lyric to you in any given song do they emerge first does the sort of uncanny lyric pop in on its own and then it has to find its way to a song it's different you know however i can get it i mean sometimes i have an idea for uh, a chorus, you know, and sometimes I have just one little detail, one little moment. Sometimes I have a person and, and I need to go about the process of fleshing them out, so to speak, and, and then seeing what they want to do. It's it's different all the time. Early on, it was like I, I had a story I wanted to tell somebody, so I would go from there. But uh, I figured out that it happens more naturally and that you don't have to look for all that stuff to find it. You know, you can you can just lay out sort of the structure of the song 
and try to say one right thing, one true thing after another, and you'll find your way to all that. But that t- took me a lot of years to figure out because I was trying to force, you know, that let's make sure everybody knows that this is what's happening or this is what I'm talking about. And later on, I, I figured out that you don't have to do that. The song will do that for itself, you know. Do your lyrics tend to undergo a lot of layers of of refinement and kind of, uh, yeah, revision and and everything? Uh, more, I don't know about a lot. I, I, I mean, two or three passes usually, you know, not like a Leonard Cohen lot, but, but not like a Lady Gaga little, you know, somewhere <laughs> between those two. <laughs> yeah, because I know one of the things musically, in terms of the musical execution of your songs, you like to capture first takes and these more innocent moments of creation when it comes to the music itself, and then with both singing and the lyrics, you know, obviously it's just not possible to always rip a take and be like, those words were were perfect. I'm willing to commit that to be on the fucking album, you know, but yeah. then you lose some of that spark of creativity that I know is important to you. So yeah, I'm just intrigued to hear a bit more about at this point where you are now, h- how that works for you and, and kind of, you know, what you, what are your, what's your idea of what your best takes are? Yeah, I would, I would never go in to make an album without having done my homework first, unless that was the the job that I was trying to do. I have an idea where at some point I'd like to go into the studio with nothing and make an album in a day and play all the instruments myself and write all the songs there in the studio just to see if I could do it. But on a normal record, I got I've got the songs with me when I come in there. I've spent months beforehand, you know, pouring over the words and the melodies and the arrangements, and you know, because that way they don't it's it's they don't get corrupted. You know, you don't get in there and start arguing about words and and melodies and stuff. I I, I write the songs, so I'm going to do that first, and then when I get in there, it can be more collaborative because the songs are already written. But there's a big difference in the, you know creating on the spot that you do when you're performing live or when you're trying to get the right take in the studio and building the platform that you're going to use to create from, you know, and the song is the platform for that. And really also the secret is the song is the only thing anybody cares about, unless you're trying to make a hit. If you're making if you're trying to make a hit, then you got to produce everything a very specific way and everything has to sound, you know, uh, a certain way. But if, if you're trying to just make something good, you know, you, you can make it on a terrible shitty four track with one microphone. And if the songs are good, it's going to work. And if the songs aren't good, nobody's going to care. So that part you have to spend a lot of time on and and really get it right and then if you've done that then when you go in the studio you're prepared you know it's not like you're giving a speech uh, and you haven't written a speech yet it's like you're going in the studio to play with the machines and that can be really super fun but if you don't have the songs man that's a that's a stressful thing to go in and start recording and say oh well i've got you know one verse and a chorus for this and i've got another verse and a chorus for that song and we got to piece all this together. You're going to spend a lot of time sitting in a vocal booth on the floor with a pencil while everybody else eats lunch, you know? No salad for you. No, uh-uh. <laughs> you got to work. No you got to pop- work. No Pop-Tarts for you. No, no Pop-Tarts. Are you always writing? I'm always taking notes. You know, about a year before I make a record, I'll I'll get fairly serious about it. And then for the like three months leading up to the recording, I'll sit down almost every day and 
you know, with the intention of writing. But, you know, I'm always writing things down. And, you know, writing and just sitting around and playing the guitar are very different things. But sometimes there's this moment where they converge. You know, I'll, I'll sit and play for an hour or two, then I'll do something that I think is cool. And then I'll do it again, and I'll do it again. And if it doesn't stop being cool, then I'll record it, you know, and go from there. But yeah, that can happen on the road or at home or, you know, at this point, it's I'm not precious about it. I don't, I don't need inspiration or any of that nonsense. You know, I just need time. By the time you get to uh, where you're finishing the songs before you're taking them into the studio, like... Is there a, a point where you you know what the album's going to be about? Like, you know, sort of before the songs are actually out of you, you know, relatively early in the process where you have this sense of, okay, it's been a couple of years. I think I know what I need to get off my chest. And now I've got to actually just find the words for all of it. No, 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 I don't do that. I think that's dangerous because that's a, that's a restriction that you don't need. Then you, you start writing for a purpose that's, something other than I just need to get this out. And also like those kind of decisions aren't for me. Those are for other people. The themes of the record, they'll make themselves known or somebody else will figure them out later on, you know. You know, what while I'm writing it, I try very hard not to judge it, whether that's judge it as good or bad or or find common threads between the songs. Those aren't on my list of rules, you know. My list of rules are, are all very like conducive to continuing the process of of creating the songs you know but i don't go back and take songs from 10 or 12 years ago that i didn't use for anything and spruce them up a little bit and put them on a new record i i, I don't work that way i all the songs for weather veins were written for weather veins you know and same with reunions and all the records that i've done before that just because you know once you do that then then the themes are going to line up because you're in the same place while you're writing these songs and the same things are on your mind. And, you know, you just have to be careful not to write four songs about the same thing. You know, if you get, if you get too far into that, then you're like, well, okay, I think I've, I think I've talked about that enough. Yeah. And there's the sort of your, you, the essential you of it all. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's always going to have the you in it. I suppose you must at a certain point come to that where you're just like, Oh, yeah, it's going to sound like me because I am me. Yes, yes. And if you're open, you know, if you have confidence in, in your own voice and uh, you're emotionally open enough to not cut yourself off mid-thought, then all that other stuff will take care of itself. You know, the real work, the hard work comes down to finding the right words, you know, that, that sing the right way and rhyme and fit into those spaces, you know, it, it almost like working a crossword puzzle. You know, I try to accept going into it that it, the right word is out there somewhere. You know, I just have to find it. It doesn't even have to be in English. It's just you have so much at your disposal. You know, sonically, you only have a few notes, but lyrically, the combinations are damn near infinite. Well, I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap up, Jason. Infinity. Infinity um, is a good conclusion. Thank you. I, 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 I like talking to you, Jenny. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jason for that awesome interview. He and the 400 unit are on tour in the U.S. in early 2024. You can get tickets at jasonisbel.com. And thanks so much for listening to episode 97. I've got another one out in a few weeks with Joy Latacoon. That was a super fun conversation as well. And you can reach me online at Jenny LSQ. 
and find earlier episodes of the LSQ podcast at JennyLSQ.com.